Hello, beautiful mama. This is another special podcast episode recorded for you during these challenging times. But I have to say, today's interview is someone that I've wanted to interview for a long time. So this is more than just a coronavirus special calm cast episode. This is also a revolutionary, and I really mean that, revolutionary way of looking at how to rebalance domestic duties, all of the things that you do in the home, all of the unspoken and silent and invisible tasks that you carry. Eve Rodsky wrote a book called Fair Play. She is an American lawyer and mediator who, as she will share in this interview, found herself in a situation she never thought would happen. Being the mama, wife, and unknowingly becoming the complete caretaker of her family, despite being so independent and feisty in her career and in her previous life before motherhood came along. This realisation helped her to embark on a huge project of asking why is so much of this falling on our shoulders and how do we change that without resentment in a fair and equal way? Yes, it's a brilliant insight into what most of us wish we could change in our own relationships and our home, but especially now. Suddenly we're finding ourselves at home, juggling homeschooling with maybe work, with a partner who's still working. We're crammed in spaces. We have all the tasks that are needing to be done. And I wanted to make sure that in this time, we don't fall back into old patterns of just doing it all and thinking we need to be superwoman. This is our chance to redefine It's our chance to talk about what is needed to be balanced, what you need and what your family needs right now. If you're listening to this podcast with babies or children, please just be aware there's quite a few feisty swearing words in this conversation. It's one of the things I loved the most about Eve, how passionate she is for this. And I'm sure you will too. Enjoy. This is the Happy Mama Movement, a weekly podcast dedicated to changing the conversation about what it means to be a mother and a woman in this day and age. I'm Amy Taylor Cabaz, author, mama, and former journalist. After spending 15 years chasing news and burning myself out trying to be superwoman, I realized that I was chasing a dream that no longer served me 
and since then have dedicated myself to understanding the transition that we go through as women when our whole identity shifts with motherhood. Every week, I will bring you the very best insights and inspiration I can find to help us all change the way we feel about this time in our lives and create a movement that allows us to honour motherhood differently. Eve, thank you so much for joining this special episode of my podcast to share some tools and really practical ideas for mamas around the globe right now on how we can have conversations with our partners on making it a little bit more fair within the home. I'm really grateful you said yes. Thank you. Oh, Amy, I'm so happy to be here. It's a crazy time and we need these conversations more than ever. So I'm really happy to uh, talk to your to your listeners. Yes, you wrote a phenomenal book, which has had a lot of attention that almost you must now feel is more needed than ever. Can you talk to us about the basis of fair play, how it came about and what it is for women and men? Yes, um, and we'll, we'll talk, I think, uh, we'll talk more generally, and then, of course, we'll address the specifics of what's happening now. But um, just to give some context for how this all started, this started uh, eight years ago for me when my husband sent me a text right after my second son, Ben, was born that said, um, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. <gasps> And um, I love that story. It was, yeah, you see it in Fair Play, the book, um, I write about it. But what was really happening, Amy, at the time was, you know, I had, I get this text um, as I'm driving. Um, I have a diaper bag and a breast pump in my passenger seat of my car. I had a um, gift, you know, all the gifts for newborn baby to return in the back seat of my car. Um, I had a client contract on my lap because I had opted out, quote unquote, opted out because it wasn't my fault. But um, I opted out of the traditional workforce um, after my second son was born because I couldn't get any flexibility in my schedule um, in my company. So I had started my own firm and I had a client contract on my lap because I'm a lawyer and a mediator by trade. Um, and I had a pen sort of sitting between my legs that was like stabbing me in the vagina, <laughs> you know, as I was trying to mark up this contract. And I was racing to get my um, older son, who was three at the time, at his you know, toddler transition program, which in America, you know, because we value working families last like five minutes. And, um, and that text from my husband came in and I don't know, there was something about that day that it just was that, you know, that straw that breaks the camel's back where I just started crying. I started crying. I pulled over to the side of the road, even though I knew I was going to be late to pick up Zach. And I started crying, thinking to myself, you know, I used to be able to manage employee teams and now I can't even manage a grocery list. But more important, Amy, it was this idea that, um, you know, how, how did I become this default or as I call it in, in fair play, you know, the she fault mm -hmm. for every single household and domestic task for my family. It wasn't supposed to happen to me. Um, I'm a product of a single mom. I had vowed that I would have an equal partner in life and I married that equal partner 
And um, I'm a lawyer and a mediator. I'm actually literally trained to use my voice. So I kept thinking if this was happening to me, someone who's trained to use their voice and who had bowed from being seven years old in a single mom household watching my mother struggle, that this wouldn't happen to me and it did. I was figuring it was probably happening to other women. I resonate with so many levels of that story. The uh, opting out of a system that doesn't support working mothers, first of all, that vow that you made to yourself that you wouldn't be in an unequal relationship and then found yourself in one. And then thirdly, the surprise and almost in my experience it was disappointment in myself that I used to for you obviously as a lawyer for me as a journalist I used to ring the prime minister's office and convince the prime minister to come on my program and not someone else's and here I was not using my voice in my own life how does this happen what? I just got chills. I loved how you summarized that. <laughs> yeah, it makes, it makes me want to cry. It makes me every single me time. Too. I still want to cry eight years later. Mm-hmm. Um, cry for womankind, I will say. Yes. Yeah, so what, what happens here? Can you, because you're a fellow researcher, you've looked deeply into this. Let's just take a pause on what to do about it and acknowledge that we are ending up in a place that we never wanted to be. Why is that? Yeah, well, it turns out, Amy, that why um, is it this is this shefall has a name, mm-hmm. um, and we actually there's been scholarship on it for a hundred years um, since Virginia Woolf said that Shakespeare couldn't be a woman because uh, she had too many domestic responsibilities. Um, but really, the shefall has a name: second shift, you may have heard, or mental load, mm-hmm. emotional labor. Um, but my favorite term was 1986. A sociologist named Arlene Kaplan Daniels, she coined a term called invisible work. And what I loved about that was that as I was reading all, every seminal article and book ever written on the subject, which your listeners don't have to do because they're dry as hell, and I summarize them all in fair play. But um, what I found was that I really liked the term invisible work because I thought, how can you value what you don't see? And so I thought maybe, just maybe, if I made visible all the invisible things I was doing for Seth and my family, my husband, um, that there would be value in the visibility. And so um, that led me on a nine-month quest to call all of my friends and friends of friends who I didn't know. And I said, what's invisible that you do for your family that, you know, your husband or family may not know? And what was so fun about this exercise was people I didn't even know, Amy, were starting to call me. Um, So I had written down, you know, in a giant Excel spreadsheet, things like, you know, attending your kid's dentist appointment an hour, you know, making school lunches, 10 minutes, um, logging onto the school forum portal, which now takes like my whole fucking lifetime. Um, <laughs> Amen. But, but the, uh, the, what was fun was women I didn't even know started saying, you know, I received your Excel sheet and I want to let you know that um, I don't see Elf on the Shelf here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 10, one month times uh, 20, you know, 20 minutes. Or I don't see Girl Scout cookies ordering in sales. That's very big in America. Um, five hours. Um, I don't see sunscreen, you know, two minutes to apply, but 30 minutes for the chase. 
And it became a really fun exercise over months and months um, of putting together this giant shit I do spreadsheet. That's what I called it, the shit I do spreadsheet. It ended up 98 tabs, 10 to 20 sub tabs, over a thousand items of invisible work. And um, one day I get the courage to send it off to Seth, you know, this 19 million megabyte spreadsheet. And I sent it to him with just a subject line, can't wait to discuss. And um, as you can imagine, well, or can't imagine, um, I waited his response and I just got the sad, lonely monkey that's covering its eyes. I didn't even get the courtesy of the three monkey trio emojis, just that sad monkey, that monkey emoji that's covering its eyes. And I think, Amy, at that point, I realized that lists alone don't work and women have been uh, making lists for 100 years. Um, but that systems do. And so that's when I decided, you know, either I'm going to become resigned to doing everything and lose myself in the process, um, or I could get my ass in gear and become my own client. And that's what I did. I started putting together a system based on my decade-long experience working with complex families and mediating for them. Because... The thing is, in that process of making that choice, either I accept I'm just going to do all the invisible work and lose myself in the process, you'll also lose your relationship because the basis of what's happening here is that we breed resentment in this, don't we? We, we, we feel this sense of how did this happen to me? How did I get here? I wasn't going to do this. But to go back to the way that you were introducing this, you married a guy who you believed it would be equal with, as did I, as did many of us. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, I think something happens almost unconsciously when kids arrive, that men and women, even if they are as conscious and open communicators as possible, somehow morph back into these archetype roles, don't they? Um, I remember in my own research from my book, there was studies around um, checking in with equality in the home before pregnancy, during pregnancy, and the conversations between the partners during pregnancy was, oh, yes, we're going to take it in turns to do this. We'll balance out who's home when the baby's sick. And then they checked back in with them again 12 months later and none of that had materialised. It was Correct. the woman who was doing it. It was the mother who took that role. Again, it's almost this question of why does this keep happening? We have good intentions to be more equal, don't we? And our guys do too, most of them. But we slip back into this old way of being. Absolutely. Not even a question. And it actually shows men do 5 to 15 hours less in the home once kids come. Um, <laughs> Per week. And so I love when you people drill down to the why, because I don't always get to talk really deeply about the why, but I, I did find my why. I, I interviewed 500 men and women for this project over the past, you know, eight years. Um, more now, obviously, way more, thousands and thousands now. Um, 10,000 alone over the past four months, you know, downloaded the Fair Play card. So we're getting really, you know, we get a lot of traction, but um, more than that, but so I have lots of lots of data and the core finding, right? So media mediators, we often say, Amy, that the, um, the presenting problem is not the real problem, right? So 
as a mediator, we're always looking for the real problem. So it was presenting as a you know man telling me he's locked out of his house over a glue stick. Um, obviously, I'm crying over off-season blueberries. Um, but but it's not about that. What it's about is the fundamental finding of fair play. What I found was that men, women in society, we view men's time as finite, like diamonds, and we view women's time as infinite, like sand. That little insight blew my mind when I first read it from you. Yes. Say it yeah. again because it's so profound. I want it to really land in mama's ears right now. So let's talk about what that means. Let's talk about it just from a, um, we know it from a societal perspective, right? That we don't value women's time the same as men's time because um, women don't get paid the same, you know, even in the same role as men, as men do. Um, if men, women enter a male profession, the salaries go down. Um, we don't, so we know that from a societal perspective, but this was the crazy thing, Amy. The crazy thing was that the worst purveyors of what I call these toxic time messages where men's time is guarded like diamonds and ours is treated like sand um, were women. And here's what I mean. So women all over this country, all over America, UK, Australia, I have interviews from Melbourne and Perth and Sydney, um, Manchester, <laughs> uh, London, um, everywhere, you know, um, Scotland, J- Japan, uh, Chinese immigrants that just came over from China. Um, so I have a lot of data, not just American data. And what was happening was women all over the world were saying things to me like, um, yes, I, I pick up the extra slack. I pick up the kids from school when they're sick. Um, yes, I'm employed, but my husband makes more money than me. Mm. Um, so that's a terrible losing argument for women because again, as I just said, even in the same jobs, we make less money. Um, so I'm going to be penalized the rest of my life because I chose philanthropy and my husband chose private equity. Um, makes no sense. The next argument was, um, well, women are just wired differently, right? I'm a better multitasker. My husband's better at focusing on one task at a time, right? Guarding his, their, their men's time. So, I went to the top neuroscientist in the world. And um, the only other day, Amy, that I cried, other than the Blueberries Day in this process over this, was um, the day I sat down with this crotchety old, you know, stereotypical neuroscientist with, you know, hair growing out of his ears. And I asked him, are women better multitaskers? Are we wired differently for care? Um, Because that's what I hear a lot. And he just looked at me like I had... I had horns on my head, right? He just looked at me with a blank stare. And then he said, imagine Eve, we can convince half the population that they're better at wiping asses and doing dishes. Mm. How great for the other half of the population. So I started crying in his office. That was a crazy one. And then, so let's keep debunking what women were regarding, how women were guarding men's time. So, so far we have, they made more money than me. Second was, um, I'm a better multitasker. I'm wired differently. The third most popular was in the time it takes me to tell him what to do in a cisgender heterosexual relationship. In the time it takes me to tell him what to do, I might as well do it myself. So I went to the top behavioral economists in the world and they said, that's a terrible argument for women because of course it makes sense to teach someone how to wipe asses and do dishes. Otherwise you're going to be doing it forever and ever and ever. And even women in the same job, two colorectal surgeons, two shipping supervisors at UPS, which is our, you know, U- U.S. Postal Service, mm-hmm. um, they, 
they, uh, they still were men, women were still saying to me, well, yes, I do more because, um, I can find the time and my husband's really busy. And so I just want to say to your listeners, right, unless we're Albert Einstein and we know how to fuck with the space-time continuum, there's actually no way to find time. There's just very different expectations over how women are supposed to use their time. And God forbid we don't, then we get guilt and shamed. So that, that's, that if you really want to understand the why, I believe that's the why. That's, that's the why that I found. Wow. I love that so much. You have some really clear um, new ways of thinking about all of this in your work, in your book, in the cards that you can get from your website. I want to go through some basics for the mummers listening right now, but can we now come to the very present moment that we're all in with this COVID-19 pandemic, with suddenly in my own experience, for example, we now have three kids at home, homeschooled. I'm still trying to run my business from home, which is what I usually do. And I have a very stressed out husband whose office is closed and he's now trying to run his full-time job from one of the kids' bedrooms. Fair play in terms of who gets what is suddenly highlighted in the most extreme way. His calls seem to be more important than mine there has been we've had to have some and he's a great guy he's a really good guy but we've had to have some really strong conversations around honoring our work priorities and making sure that mine has seen inequality of his but also who's going to be looking after the kids this is a reality for billions of families right now what do we do how do we do this well, okay. Yes. I, I believe we can do this. And I actually think there's a huge silver lining here because um, the rest of your listeners are not going to have to make a 98 tab Excel spreadsheet called the shit I do to make anything visible. Um, <laughs> the fair play cards are enough. If you say dishes, um, now your partner knows what dishes look like. They don't just magically disappear during the day, right? Or when you are elfin-like and do everything after everyone's asleep, as so many women I spoke to did, right? They, it, this is visible. There, and, and there is value in visibility. As stressful as it feels, there is value in visibility. Um, and my favorite meme out there floating around is no one will ever ask a stay-at-home mom what she does all day ever again. I know. I saw that too and cheered. (laughs) And I think that the beauty of this is that if you don't know how to communicate with your partner, if you don't have practice, then you better learn because otherwise it's going to be a crisis for both of you. And so that's all I want to talk about today. What I think is, you know, this idea of entering a system, right? Fair play is a system. It's not a list. It has cards. It's a gamified system because it's fun. Uh, Values conversations can be hard, which we'll talk about, but fair play makes them fun. It's a hundred card game where you discuss your domestic life based on these hundred cards. And then you divide it up based on what I call conception, planning, and execution, full ownership. But before we get there, what I want to say is that a core tenant of fair play um, of the book and my system is communication. So what is a system? I think people are so afraid, Amy, of that word, of a system. But a good system, just like in work, um, at home, means to me just two things. 
as an organizational management specialist, when I talk about systems, I mean two things. I mean clearly defined expectations. And I mean knowing your role. That's it. That's it. And fairness and transparency sprinkled in. So when I go in to mediate for clients that look like the HBO show Succession, I don't know if you have that yet, but I work for very complex families. And by the time I leave their organization, I am rated on whether their organization has fairness and transparency, whether everyone knows their role at all times, and whether there's explicitly defined expectations. When I go into people's homes and I ask them, in your home organization, do you have any of these three? Most people say they don't even have one. They don't have fairness. They have no transparency. They're just figuring it out on the fly. There's definitely not clearly defined expectations. Everyone's screaming about who's setting the table at the time when you're hungry and cranky. Um, And a lot of people do not know their role or they thought they had an equal role, right? And all of a sudden their role was, I'm the housewife and... um, childcare worker and worker B and CEO and middle level management all in one. And I had no idea that that was going to be my role. So systems are about just clearly defined expectations, but how do you get there? The only way you can get there to clearly define expectations and knowing your role is to communicate. That is it. So the central tenet about what I'm asking people to do in this pandemic is to communicate. And Fair Play used to be, it's based on a weekly check-in. I'm now asking your listeners to sit down nightly. Or if you can't, nightly, in the morning, you know, whenever your schedule allows. But the nightly check-in, the practice of communicating regularly is what is the saving grace for the people who are reaching out to me now, who are playing, who have been playing this system, who've been living the system before the pandemic. What I'm really worried about when I sit and think about what must be happening in so many homes around the world is that we have two choices here as women. We can use this, as you said, And as I have been saying ever since the reality of this has become clear, this could be our opportunity to redefine what it means to be a mother and a woman and equality in the home and balance at work and all the things that we have been whispering to each other and to ourselves wanting for such a long time. Or we can go even further into the martyr role. And I really feel like it's one or the other at the moment that because we are so used to not valuing our time, not valuing our worth, just accepting that so much of what we do is invisible, there's a real um, risk here, isn't there, Eve, that this could exacerbate that or transform it. Do you agree? Absolutely. I mean, this is why, Amy, I'm devoting my life to this cause. Yeah. Um, my day job is what pays me really well. And I love my day job of being a mediator of these complex families. But I'm doing this in every moment of my life now, um, talking about these issues, because I do think we're at that inflection point. Mm. I think we're at that inflection point, the sort of the same inflection point that I, we all personally have or where I was at that moment where I said, am I going to resign myself to doing it all? because I've had, I've made a hundred lists and this doesn't work or am I, and lose myself in the process um, and become one of those women that was Harvard trained and doesn't, you know, my education gets way like, you know, sidelined and all that investment in myself is gone. Mm -hmm. Or do, do I, do I say to myself, there's another narrative here 
And I do believe there's another narrative here. Obviously, the narrative for single mothers is not this narrative. This is a privileged narrative of somebody who has a partner in the home. Um, but this narrative affects single mothers because the motherhood penalty, the 10% of our wages that we lose per child when they come into this world is so stark that it's why we have pay equity issues. It's why we don't see women in middle management get to the CEO levels because we are perceived as the primary caretakers and as less committed to our work. So how do we get out of that? We get out of it by valuing care, by showing that an hour holding your child's hand in the pediatrician's office is as valuable as an hour in the boardroom. And I do believe there's a reckoning around men now who are starting to believe that, right? What, what is, why am I on this earth? Why am I here? There's an existential piece of what's happening right now. If we make this about, oh, let's just hang on till the nanny gets back. No, this is a time for us to say, we want a different world. I had a woman say to me, who's very traditional. And this is why I think there's hope, Amy. She said to me, you know what? I was really okay doing it all. But I re- what I realize now is that I'm not okay having my daughter and son watch me do it all. Mm. And oh, that so that was really beautiful. And I think that that's where we are. We are at a place where if it is just micro steps, there is not a big shift that I'm asking of anybody in my, my work, in this, my system, in the book. And if you can't get the book on Audible because they're, they're not shipping books right now, just go to the website for tools, free tools. But the beauty or follow Fair Play Life on Instagram, but the beauty of this, what I'm asking people to do is just one, is just one thing. And that's start making, committing to your home as pretending it's your most important organization. More important than your business, more important than your Mahjong group. Even my Aunt Marion's Mahjong group, Amy, has more clearly defined expectations. If you don't <laughs> act twice, you're kicked out of the group. How can Aunt Marion's Mahjong group have more clearly defined expectations than our most important organization, our home. So the only thing I'm asking of your listeners now in this post-pandemic world is, is to understand what I mean by system, which is just a practice of starting to understand how you communicate at home. And it starts with nightly check-ins now. Committing, invest in your relationship like you're investing in toilet paper. It's just 15 to 20 minutes a night of sitting down with your partner and saying, hey, these are the dirty dozen. You know, this mediator I heard on this podcast, she said that there's a dirty dozen. There's 12 tasks or cards, as she calls them, that are causing the most consternation right now and arguments. And I just want to start sitting down every night and let's just see how they're going, how we're doing with them. Um, Are we reaching resentment? Are we feeling okay? How are, you know, how do we feel? Let's devote one night to per, per task and let's just talk about it for 10, 15 minutes. Um, You start the practice of sitting down to communicate. You and I talked before we hit record for this podcast about um, the opportunity here and how uh, this, once we finally move out of this pandemic, this absolute isolation that we're in in the moment right now, that this really is almost another wave of, of feminism, another opportunity for us to redefine what's happening in the home. And that's why I really wanted you to be on this podcast, to share how we can do this practically and not go back into silent suffering and, and old martyr roles. So there's four main areas that you outline. I mean, your book is so 
packed full of insights and tips and way to talk about this and and things that you should be bringing to the table in the conversation. But a beautiful summary is the four things. First is, as you've already shared, which blew my mind, all time is created equally from now on. Men's time is not finite and your time is not infinite. Then you've also got reclaim your right to be interesting. Can you talk about this? Because I think this is really interesting for women. How, again, why do we do this? What do you mean by reclaim your right to be interesting? Well, what I want to say is that I remember around the time when that pen was stabbing me in the vagina, right? I would get these sort of emails around finding my passion or purpose or self-care to commit to my beauty regimen or something like bullshit like that. And I was thinking to myself, fuck you, people. Like, I, I have a pen stabbing me in the vagina, right? So I don't believe in... Um, our, our permission to be interesting as women or even our permission to have self-care really without domestic rebalance. Otherwise, to me, it just feels shaming another thing I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to have like a picture-perfect body from some stupid TRX class on top of being interesting, on top of my work, oh. on top of being another. It's just too much shit, right? And so without the context of domestic rebalance, I don't believe any of these sort of quote-unquote, self-help messages. But in the context of domestic rebalance, um, I do. And I actually think, from my research, it's more important than I even understood because I wanted to write an organizational management book, and I just wanted to write solutions for domestic rebalance because that's what I'm good at. That's what my discipline is. I'm a mediator. But the most common theme that was coming up for women pre-pandemic was this idea that they um, felt like they were losing their identity in midlife, that there was no role models for how to do interested in their own life, right? I had a friend with three Ivy League degrees that I went to school with. She started signing her emails, hashtag Braden's mom. Mm -hmm. Um, She lost her name, right? So it's this idea, and it came from an interview with a woman who I thought had it all because she was a very wealthy woman, my old client. And that was one of my toxic tie-in messages where if you have help, these issues wouldn't affect you. That's bullshit. Outsourcing is just another thing on your list that you have to do. So she said to me, I said, why did your marriage end? And she tells me she lost her permission to be interesting. And I found that very provocative because it's not about a permission from our spouse or our society. It's our permission from ourselves. And because of guilt and shame, and this idea of what I call in the book domestic encroachment, we often lose it. And for now, especially now, yes, um, there is going to be no time, no time for this idea of what makes you you if you don't reclaim it. And there is a beautiful moment out there to find creativity. And I will say that I had this beautiful um, text from a woman who said to me she was a baker when she lived in Switzerland with her husband. And they loved American treats because... They were cheaper than Swiss treats, and she made these beautiful confections, um, and she would try a different recipe every week. And she said, you know, I lost all that since I had kids. But this pandemic, she's been baking again. And she said, I'm not sure where this is going to take me, but I know I've rediscovered something in myself and that the world needs more cakes. Mm. So what I want to say to women out there, even now, post-pandemic, is what makes you you, and how do you share that with the world? And by the world, I don't mean likes on social media. I mean purposeful sharing because that's your key to your mental health right now. More than a bubble bath, which is great, 
But the active pursuit of what makes you you, even if it's only five minutes a day right now, whether it was writing poems or just starting, uh, opening a moleskin and starting to journal or starting to bake a pie from scratch, even if you've never baked one before and that's something you want to try, that type of active pursuit, that creativity is what's going to save us right now in terms of our mental health. Oh, 100% agree with you. But I'm so grateful that you first point out that the rebalancing in the home needs to come first because I've been talking about what happens to a woman when she becomes a mother for more than a decade. And when I first started, it was around this idea of self-care, something for yourself. But what I realised when you talk about that is what exactly what you said. Women look at that and think, I don't have time for that, and then they beat themselves up that they're not doing anything for themselves. And so it's this toxic, cyclical yes. thing that we do to ourselves of I really should be exercising more because I used to love running, but I don't have time to do that, so now I feel really bad about myself and think that I'm fat, and so now I'm going to do all of these it's this terrible like, thing while, to do while, while your partner um because these are the true stories right the fat schlub that you married i love him but you know he was like 500 pounds all of a sudden i see all my friends and their 500 pound partners who are awesome guys right all of a sudden now they have six packs and they're fucking triathletes right <laughs> i mean what i is love that? how raw you are it's right? brilliant I mean, it's this case of the triathlete. You know how many times in my 500 plus interviews, um, I would interview the women and the man and all of a sudden the, the man in this hetero cisgender relationship was a fucking triathlete all of a sudden or a marathoner. I'm like, Oh really? Is that because it's, 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 you want to escape the house with toddlers when, on the weekend? Okay. That sounds awesome. Cause I want to do that too. Right. So that, that when, happens when so often when there's unfairness in time, because women do twice as much a day in domestic labor and men take twice as much leisure time a day. Um, it is twice and twice. Um, And so one man, I love his analogy. His wife said her life is a conveyor belt. And he said his life is a plate. When his plate is full, he stops. And she says, well, I can't be a plate because I'm a conveyor belt. And the shit that comes at me, I have to do. Mm. And it's a very different way of looking at the world. But you can look at the world as a plate only if you're willing to say, I have enough on my plate, meaning that if your plate spills over, right, someone's willing to catch it, right? The conveyor belt is catching it. Um, and that's a very privileged place to be. And I want to talk a little bit, one thing is really important around these issues, around especially now, it's this idea of guilt and shame. So even if you do not do anything with your partner, you don't rebalance, you don't do the nightly check-in, you don't start communicating, even though I'm asking you to, the one thing you can do for yourself, practical thing you can do for yourself, is you can take a piece of paper, you can take a Sharpie that you have in your house, You can write the words guilt and shame on it. You can fold it up into a little square and you can burn it. Actually physically take a lighter to it and burn it. And this is what I did before I went on book tour with a man, you know, a husband who made me cry over blueberries, who did zero cards, two cards. He had fun and playing and money manager and the hundred card system. And now was going to hold all the cards while I went on a five month book tour this year. Our journey was so very transformative for us. But I was still holding back on this idea that leaving my kids on and off for five months was a very provocative thing to do. People don't do that, even though men do it all the time, right, for work and business trips. 
And so I decided that that angst, because Seth has it and he's a great dad and he's holding all the cards with our minimum standard of care, which we can talk about more. But I decided to burn guilt and shame um, to do that. I put uh, guilt and shame on a silver Sharpie on a piece of origami paper for my daughter, Anna's, you know, arts and crafts kit. And I folded it up and I burned it and I talked to guilt and shame. And I said, you got me out of my single mom household, guilt and shame. You got me probably to do all the homework I didn't want to do because I felt shamed or guilty. You got me wherever I needed to go to this point, but I don't need you anymore. And I'm not going to live with you anymore. You've served your purpose and I appreciate you, but now I'm, I'm done. And that burning of guilt and shame was um, very, very cathartic. And it actually um, has cha- it changed me. It really did change me. Because so often we keep going with this way of being because it is almost overlaid with this guilt and shame. So again, you can't get to joy in baking unless you burn the the guilt and shame first. Absolutely. You can't get joy, joy in anything. Like, I don't want to bake with my kids. I want to bake alone, <laughs> one woman said to me. Um, I don't want to write my book with my kids. I want to do that alone. Um, I want to run a marathon alone, right? This is not about one spin class. This is the active pursuit of what makes you you. Because what I'm telling you all is that I'm writing a lot of this for my second book, which is just based on this issue. And what I'm learning by living in happiness labs and talking to experts of every discipline who talks about joy and meaning is that the active pursuit of what makes us us and how we purposely share that with the world is not only key to our mental health, but it's actually key to our longevity. It's key to our longevity and, and it's key to our partnerships because the permission to be unavailable can come out in two ways. It can come out very destructive where women and men are admitting to me that they're going back to old boyfriends and girlfriends on Facebook and looking at them and and starting these emotional affairs and other ways to be unavailable. Or you can be unavailable by doing something productive. Something for you where you say, I need my time. And I call it unicorn space in fair play because like the mythical beast, it doesn't fucking exist until we reclaim it. Hmm. And so unicorn space the active pursuit of what makes you you is, is the key. It's a key to our mental health and longevity. And so many women said to me, I don't even know what it is anymore. And that's a problem. And if you don't know what it is anymore, who gives a shit? Just start with anything. <laughs> start with anything. Start with anything that ever made you happy that you ever thought you wanted to do. Download Babbel, learn Spanish. It doesn't have to be a lifelong pursuit. This is just about you starting the practice are recognizing that your time to leisure, to pursue who you are outside of being a worker and a parent um, and a partner is just as important as your part, as your spouses. Mm, to reclaim ourselves again. Okay. So we could talk for days, <laughs> but if we are to summarize for the mummers either still in isolation where they listen to uh, these interviews, still at home in that reality of a completely different routine and structure of children and work and partnership, or they're listening to this once we're finally back to some sort of normal but life will never be the same. We start with communication. 
we start with putting all the cards on the table and really being honest about all the invisible things that have been going on and we talk to our partners about what feels like fair play in this relationship right now. Correct. And once you do that, the consciousness raising takes a little time, right? The people who've been less successful and had to rejigger the system were women and men who wanted to treat this like a list. Oh, I'm going to download the Carsmere website and you're doing meals and I'm doing laundry, right? That's just another list. Really, um, what this system is based on, like you said, there's four rules, and you did a beautiful job, Amy, talking about all time is created equals number one. Remembering that your right to be interesting is important. That's number two. Number three and four come together. It's this idea of starting where you are and establishing your values and standards. So the one thing I want to leave everybody with, besides the fact that the consciousness that your time is equal to your partner's, even if you're paid less, because um, you only have 24 hours in a day. That's number one. Number two, like I said, is you have a right not to feel guilt and shame when you reclaim your time, even in a pandemic, um, even if it's five minutes a day for something that's you, that is the active pursuit of what makes you you. And finally, this idea that you will do domestic rebalance and you, you, you can go on Fair Play Life. You can, I've been doing a Zoom series about how you actually play. But what I think is important to, to leave your listeners with is this idea that this system doesn't work without do, communicating your why first. And I'll just leave you with a story. This is a story of Seth and me when I first started to develop Fair Play. So Fair Play, right, is this game that's based on mustard. Um, you only have to think about mustard, right? You have to know how your mustard got in your refrigerator. Um, you, Someone had to know your second son, Johnny, likes yellow mustard with his protein, otherwise he chokes, right? That in organizational management is what we call conception. Someone has to monitor that mustard when it's running low and put it on a grocery list with everything else needed for the week. That in organizational management is what we call planning. And then someone has to get their butt to the store to buy the yellow mustard, and that's what, uh, in a fair play, you know, we call execution. Now, that's in my research, right, where men were coming in in execution. And then they're bringing home spicy Dijon, right, the, the gross mustard with the seeds, and you ask for yellow mustard. And, um, and that's, that's the main crux of the problem in the home. And then men all over this country, in America especially, were saying, well, I'm not going to do more in the home because I can't get anything right. Every time I do something, I'm criticized, and I don't like getting things wrong. And women said to me, Eve, you want me to really sit down and talk about my living will with him? The dude can't even bring home the right fucking type of mustard, <laughs> right? So it becomes this idea, not about mustard, as we said before, not about blueberries, not about glue sticks, even though that's how it's presenting. But the real issue is about trust and your values and your standards. Because if you lose trust in somebody and you say, well, I'm not going to let him do the dishes because there's going to be crust all over the dishes when they come out. Um, and I can't trust him to do them in the way he said they were, or I can't trust him to do it at all, then that is toxic for a relationship because it breeds terrible resentment. And on top of that, you lose trust. And trust is the foundation for any relationship. As a mediator, we think about trust all the time. Um, and so that's everything. Trust and expectations are everything. So that's how fair play works. So Seth and I, he got the idea of you own the full mustard situation. He understood that fair play is about when you hold the grocery card, you hold it with the conception all the way to the planning to the execution. So for garbage, he understood that the conception, planning, and execution of garbage when he was doing the whole task meant getting the bag back in the bin 
right? In the liner, back in the bin, taking the rubbish out, right? To, to the street because we have bins out there. Like my, my husband, Seth, understood garbage. Hmm. But what was happening is I was still stalking him like his garbage shadow. I was walking around the kitchen, seeing if he was going to look at the, the rubbish in the bin. I was panicking that he was not going to take it out. And he said to me, you know, this is not working. <laughs> you know, this, this, your system you're trying to develop. And this was three years ago when um, I had done finished doing my research and I was actually putting the system into play. And I realized I missed a step. I had missed Amy, the most important step that I had been doing for a decade with the families I work with. And that's called values-based mediation. And once I added that step, the whole system literally fell into place and it's working for thousands and thousands of couples. And that's starting with your why. So instead of saying to Seth, you own garbage, which he does to this day, I started with my why and I said to him, I'm sorry, I'm your garbage shadow. This was during one of our check-ins when we had, you know, ice cream and tequila, when emotion is low and cognition is high. And I said, I'm sorry that I've been your garbage shadow. I'm sorry that I'm stalking you over garbage. Um, But I need you to understand why I care so much. Because when I was seven, you know, and I started to take over garbage for our family, garbage was falling out all over our floor. We didn't have a garbage bag in my apartment growing up. We just had a random plastic bag that sat on a not you know a handle in our garbage in our kitchen a small kitchen and garbage would fall out all over the floor trash would fall out all over the floor and we had a huge cockroach and gar and water bug problem and every time I see garbage Seth every time I see trash on the floor I feel like I'm seven again I'm a kid who's raising themselves, who's helping their mother as a parental child. And I can't live like that anymore. I can't see garbage. And then Seth was able to say to me, well, I had a housekeeper growing up and I I slept on pizza boxes in my fraternity. I don't give a shit about garbage. So what happens, Amy, when you're so divergent on something that has to get done every day? Well, 30% of people would divorce over these issues um, or feel more, feel resentment and anger. Um, so what instead you do is you start talking about your minimum standard of care. What can you both live with? Not lowering your standards or raising your standards or any of that shaming language, but what's our minimum standard of care for our family? And we decided it was taking garbage out once a day because it mattered to me and Seth still was going to own it. And once we decided on our minimum standard of care, and then it was going to go out once a day. Seth said, I'll put it in my work, my calendar, like a work appointment, as long as you never fucking mention the word garbage ever again. <laughs> and it was a miracle. It was literally like Jesus walking on water. Um, garbage started going out in a way that it never had before without me having to remind my husband every single time or putting a garbage liner on the sink. Garbage started going out. And so that's when I knew that this was, it felt like a miracle to me. And that's the miracle of starting with your why. For every fair play card that you're going to discuss during this time, especially what I call the dirty dozen, the 12 cards that people are identifying right now are causing the most arguments in a pandemic, which are laundry and groceries and meals and home supplies and emergency planning and tidying up and cleaning and dishes and social interactions for kids, like friendship calls and FaceTime, watching of your kids, homework, which has turned into homeschool, discipline and screen time for kids, 
and garbage. Those cards are causing the most angst in our home. And it's time we start having a values conversation about why we care about it before we decide what we're doing about it. Hmm. That is the crux of fair play. Wow. Thank you for, I want to say thank you for your brain. (laughs) But what I mean by that is to have such, as you've said a couple of times, that mediator experience, that, that system of thinking to bring that to a problem and a struggle that so many of us have tried to overcome in our own way, tried to have conversations, but nothing really changes. Thank you for your dedication for all of these years to finding a way to make this difference. I think, as we said at the beginning, this is going to be a time where we value (laughs) what a woman does in a whole new way. And I really hope that each of us take this opportunity to change our responses, to use our voice, to be braver in our communication and free ourselves from that shame and guilt and really do this differently. I'm I'm really grateful for everything that you've done. Thanks, Eve. Thank you, Amy. And can I just end with one last thing, which is this idea about communication. I have so many women say to me that they cannot have conversations about domestic life because it's too triggering, especially now, right? I mean, Women have been saying that to me for eight years when I interviewed them. Um, I had a woman say to me, I can't communicate about domestic life. It's just my husband won't hear it. It's too triggering. But then I found out that she she tells me in the same conversation that the last time her husband forgot to put laundry in the dryer, he dumped, she dumped the wet clothes on his pillow. I had another woman say she doesn't talk about domestic life. And then I find out she has an Instagram account called the shit my husband doesn't pick up. And she takes pictures of everything he that's on the ground that he leaves on the floor and, and she publicly shames him on Instagram. So as a mediator, I just want to leave your audience with, you all are already communicating about domestic life. I promise you, I could go onto your security camera and I'll see five ways without even seeing your mouth move about how you're communicating about domestic life. So I'm not asking for a communication start. I'm asking for a communication shift a shift to productivity, a shift to a, la- a lack of resentment, a shift, to, a shift to a practice where you're not afraid to have these conversations because you're having them daily or weekly. That's what I'm asking for. Mm, very powerful little thought to leave us with because as soon as you said that, I thought, oh, yes, we communicate how we feel about things, <laughs> even in the way that we huff and roll our eyes and those types of things. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of communication going on. Correct. <laughs> so as a mediator, I say you're already communicating. So instead of thinking of it as a start, think about it as a shift and invest in your relationships like you invest in toilet paper right now. Thank you so much. I will put all the details of how everybody can get access to this information. As you said, books are not really being delivered right now, but there's lots of other ways that we can still use this amazing system. And thank you and stay safe and well during this time. You too. I'm so glad we met. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, that interview was meant to go for half an hour. And I struggled to stop it at nearly an hour. I loved her approach to how we can make this more fair in our homes and why we need to. How even the best of us 
who are strong and powerful in parts of our life struggle with this in our home. I know that we are in the most unprecedented times in our homes and in our relationships right now. And I hope that this conversation has inspired you to speak up, to change the fair play in your home and your relationship, to show your children that it doesn't all fall on you, that this is our chance to change the way things are balanced in our life and ensure that women's time is valued just as much as men's. Please stay safe, look after each other. Go to Eve's website, fairplaylife.com and download her free Fair Play cards so you can start this conversation in your home. Until next time, Satnam.